This podcast contains language and subject matter some may find offensive. Keep out of reach of children and the elderly. This is Canadian Spirit. Welcome everybody to Canadian Spirit, the podcast where two Canadian paranormal researchers look into our nation's most famous and infamous paranormal events. I'm your host, Kelly McMillan, and with me as always is the enigmatic, the personable, the founder of Spirit himself, Darcy Baruda. And good day to everybody. So how's it been going today, Darcy? Ah, so far so good, Kelly. It's a little bit cold. What are we at? Minus 15 here in BC. A little bit of snow overnight, but it's going pretty good. Yeah, about the same here. We're expected to get some pretty cold temperatures going on, which, uh, yeah, that's always fun. Yeah, well, we're almost through it. We're through the blunt of it now. Yeah, true enough. Yeah, sorry if I seem a little bit subdued today. I'm not terribly thrilled about today's topic. I don't know why I picked it. Maybe it was just to get it out of the way, but something that just genuinely has terrified me for quite a while now. Oh, okay. But yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, with nothing else, we'll move on to the new Twitter follower shoutouts. First up, the Full Circle podcast. Always time for true crime podcast. A lot of podcasts today, so you'll have to bear with me. Even the Score podcast. Knowing My Nightmares podcast. Top Dad podcast. Oz9 podcast. Murder Bucket podcast. Everything Goes podcast. Primarily Critical. Tepid Topics. The Dennis George Show. FTR podcast. Heather Grant, A Few Bad Apples podcast. This is actually one that I listened to myself. I was kind of excited to see them on our list. Uh, They're about uh, bad cops doing bad things. Ah, interesting. Next up, we've got The Gutter podcast, Amber Van Lu, and Malice podcast. So thank you to all those guys for following us on Twitter. Yes, thank you very much. No new five-star reviews this week, though. But then again, we're recording way in advance. Uh, It's currently january 25th this will be coming out at the end of february so should be good all right today's gonna be a long episode so we're gonna jump right into it here with canadian spirit chronology the legend of the wendigo is hard to track down because it was spoken of long before european settlers even discovered the new world Even its origins are disputed, with some sources claiming that the Algonquin tribes, with others being either the Cree or Ojibwe tribes, being the first to speak of this monster's original birthplace. However, the legend of the creature spans across the nation and many of our indigenous peoples, including my home province of Alberta and Darcy's BC. So you can see why it's hard to pin down exactly where the Wendigo came from. What can be yeah, ex- there's been a few uh, a few sightings here. I've heard just uh, recently from a few people here, right here in Dawson Creek, actually. Not here in Dawson Creek, but uh, Claremont, I've heard that they've had some. Uh, of the Wendigo? Here. Yes, I've heard Jesus. some people. And, uh, actually, uh, the reason I know this is because uh, some friends of mine have gotten wind of our show and uh, had quite the conversation with me about this whole thing. So I found it quite interesting that you're talking about it being in Alberta. Yeah, no, because this thing has been recorded everywhere across the nation, everywhere from BC all the way to Ontario. I don't believe I found anything linking it to Quebec, but then again, well, we can always know. we can always kind of link the Lugaru to it as well for reasons that we'll see in a little bit. Yeah. 
So again, be agreed upon is the fact is that the Wendigo was a tale that was spoken about by indigenous peoples of Canada and the northeastern United States for centuries, if not millennia before the Europeans showed up. Depending on which nations of people we're talking about, the creature can be called the Wentigo, the Wentigo, the Wen, the Windy, Windigo, Wintigo, Windiga, Wentikito, and Wittigo, among other names. Personally, I don't like any of these options because I'm not even comfortable saying this thing's name. Yeah, it's a little different, I have to admit. Yeah, no, um, for those of you who've been listening long enough, you know that there are certain stories about the paranormal I will not tell, and the Wendigo is one of them, so... Yeah, let's just say it. Uh, it well, let's say, we'll we'll put it this way. I've got a bit of a sin to confess, Darcy. All right. When I first started out in this field, I started out as an absolute skeptic. I was uh, actually planning on infiltrating groups and showing how much of uh, or how big a charlatans they were because I was in my early twenties and full of terrible ambitions. Right. And a case where this team that I was a part of, this was long before Spirit, the team that I was a part of, we investigated a uh, a Wendigo possession, and that completely changed my mind on where the par- what the paranormal was. So, just for some context. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. You should say that. I don't know if um, I told anybody about the story that uh, did I mention the story about. Uh, my Clearwater incident when I was about uh, seven years old. Kelly, did I mention that on our podcast at all? Do you yeah, remember? you did so. That was in the pilot episode way back at the very beginning. Oh, right. Okay. Well, just to clear, refresh, you mind if I tell a story really quickly? Go ahead. Uh, just to refresh everybody on this. Just for sake saying, the reason why, this is how I got into this paranormal investigation. And you know this, Kelly, is what happened to me when I was about seven years old in, in a certain house and in the... Clearwater, BC. And it's very much like the movie The Shining, but it's not like that because there was more children and I was actually playing hide and go seek in the basement. They'd call me down at different times of night. Story short, I'd see these children wanting to play hide and go seek. And we had a rather large crawl space at the time, right? Mm-hmm. And my parents would wake up. Uh, let's just pick a time, like three in the morning, per se. And I'd be playing with these children in the basement, in the crawl space of our Clearwater house, hide and go seek. Now, my parents never saw the children, but I was the only one that saw them, and they were always playing hide and go seek in the basement with these kids. Now, when you're seven years old, you see another child, you think it's a child, you don't think anything of a spirit, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, now my family's had other experiences. They never saw, I don't believe that they ever saw any um, apparitions like I do, but they would see uh, gray cats running up and down the stairs. I remember how the story goes. And yep. uh, different bizarre episodes like that going on in the house. So that's kind of been with me all through the years. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. We all, or at least the both of us, we have. Yeah. Yeah, we both have experiences that kind of haunt us, for lack of a better term. Exactly. And that's, I guess that's why, well, you and I, I guess this is why we, we got so attached to this whole paranormal investigating deal, right? Yeah, definitely. So moving on, the Wendigo is often said to be the twisted remains of a human being whose soul was corrupted by greed, some form of dark magic, or more commonly, those who became Wendigos, or Wendigog, depending on which plural form you believe is right, are those who resorted to cannibalism during times of famine, or during the cold, harsh winters of the region, which we'll see in play later, so stick a pin in that. I'll also note that individuals can also be possessed by the spirit of the Wendigo to commit acts of cannibalism, which also plays into the story that we'll tell later. 
The appearances of these things also vary as greatly as their names do. Some of these descriptions are just as terrifying as you might expect. A few of the examples are as follows. The Eastern Cree in, in Wee tribes describe the Wendigo as an exceptionally large giant humanoid who grows as much as it eats, and yet maintains the frame of a person who has suffered many, many years of starvation. The Ojibwe peoples describe it as an extremely thin, eight-foot-tall humanoid creature sporting ash-colored mummified skin with a mouthful of long, sharp yellow fangs and glowing red or orange eyes. Or in some legends, it's described as a being made entirely out of ice that resembles an emaciated human being. Think of an ice sculpture that Eli Roth would have in his lavish Hollywood parties. Other nations of indigenous peoples described the Wendigo as a creature with the head of a deer, the emaciated body of a man with sunken eyes. It is also said that it has exceptional eyesight, hearing, and can move at the speed of the wind, whatever that means, and can move across deep snow without so much as sinking. So it's kind of like an antler Legolas, or a really hungry, deer-headed Jesus. But essentially, there's no fucking escape from this thing once it sets its sight on, sights on you. Now, what's the difference between the Wendigo and the other ones that you were mentioning, Kelly? Just out of curiosity. Uh, you mean like the Win Wintigo and things like that? Yeah. Well, essentially, it's the same creature. It's just different names and different dialects, right? It's all cannibalistic spirits okay. that uh, fall within the same vein. Mm -hmm. However, between, like I said, it's the Cree, the Algonquin, the Inui, there's lots of different tribes who have this same kind of legend and their languages vary greatly. So it's not hard to see right. why they have so many different names for the thing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And also too, depending on where the legend comes from, each one of these tribes has a different description of what the creature looks like and what it can do or whether or not it's actual, actually a physical creature, or whether it's an ethereal one. Oh, so, but nevertheless, primary principle of this creature is that, it wants to eat humans. Right. That's only the physical form of the creature, too, that we were just discussing. The other form of the creature is far more insidious. Uh, the spiritual form of the ethereal form, as I mentioned, possesses people into committing acts of murder and mutilation on their fellow man, which we'll explore now because there's some actual real-world examples of this happening, and it goes back hundreds of years. We'll start in chronological order after the first European settlers arrived because those are the first real records that we see on the subject. And sadly, there isn't much as far as indigenous histories go, given that their cultures relied more on the oral transmission of stories rather than writing it down. And even if they did, in most cases, we wouldn't really recognize those languages because a lot of them have been unfortunately wiped out. Interesting. Yeah, it was. Uh, we actually covered a little bit of that or back in, I believe it was episode five on the uh, Charles Camsell Hospital. We yeah, I remember that. Thanks. That's why it was starting to sound familiar. I remember that now. I thought yeah. a lot of this, but I wasn't sure. No, thanks. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, we touched on a little bit of the um, policies and and things like that to essentially wipe out our indigenous peoples and yeah, and horrible. Uh, I think so, that there was a case of this on on the Unsolved Mysteries way back too. I remember with uh, Robert Stack. It talked uh, about the Wendigo. Oh. Yeah. Might actually have something to do with one of the stories that we have to tell today. Yeah, yeah, that's why I was just, it, it sparks the thing. Anyways, carry on. This is interesting. All right. So the first recorded instance comes from Paul de Jour, a Jesuit missionary who lived amongst the Algonquin peoples of what is now Quebec. Oh, there was a Quebec connection. I should have known that because I wrote this. <laughs> oh, there you go. Okay, so as such, he would report back to his superiors periodically about his progression in converting the locals. 
In one such report in 1636, Dijon wrote, This devilish woman added that the Wendigo had eaten some of the... Please, forgive my pronunciation of this. Atika Miguquin of the tribes that live north of the river that is called Three Rivers, and that he would uh, that he would eat a great many more of them if he had not been called elsewhere. But that Octen, which is a type of werewolf, would come in his place and devour them, even up to the French fort, and that he would slaughter the French themselves. End quote. This report is one of many that demonstrated that the 17th century Europeans were just as fearful of these creatures as the natives themselves, which some may find surprising, but these are 17th century Europeans we're talking about here. They were more, they were a lot more religious back in those days and far more likely to believe in anything supernatural, just as much, if not more than their indigenous counterparts, in fact. Now, this would be only one of dozens of reports made by missionaries and employees of the Hudson's Bay Company that would come to that would come out between the 17th and 20th centuries. So depending on the legend, there were a few ways to kill a Wendigo. Some cultures believed that it was possible to kill the beast by beating it to death or killing it with firearms, while others believed that the only way to permanently get rid of a Wendigo was to take it down, dismember it, burn its ice-cold heart in a raging fire, and the task usually fell to the shaman or the chief of the tribe. Stick another pin in that. But Whoa. there was one notable... Hmm? Yeah, carry on. But there was one notable case in Canadian history of some real Wendigo hunters around the turn of the 20th century. We are, of course, talking about the Fiddler brothers, Jack and Joseph, or as their indigenous names went, again, forgive me, Juano Gizigo, Gubao, and Pesquan. Again, oh, you're saying it better than I said. I'm trying my best here. I probably I'm probably butchering this because I'm not a speaker of the native Cree language, but you're doing a good job. <laughs> Better than I could do. I say it with confidence, and that's all that matters. <laughs> anyway, the, these two were born around the Sandy Lake area in on, in modern day Ontario in the 1840s. Both being sons uh, of the chief Pimi Chikag, or as his English translation name goes, Porcupine Standing Sideways. They were both born into tough times as their clan, called the Sucker Clan, their name, not mine, were on the verge of famine and a fur shortage due to the Hudson's Bay Company over-trapping potential food and fur sources in their area, which made the situation worse for the Sucker Clan because of the fact that the Hudson's Bay Company was or then closed their trading ports to the area to move out west, seeking more economic opportunities. So, yeah, that was fun. This, this created a problem for the Sucker Clan as they now had to travel longer, more brutal distances during the eight months of fucking winter that we get here in Canada to find more trading opportunities with other clans. So this was the shit show that Jack inherited in 1890 when his father died and he became chief of the Sandy Lake Peoples and their allied groups. Can you imagine that? I mean, like, first of all, this company moves in and starts taking pretty much all the all the game and and food and all of a sudden they're like okay peace out bro then they move out to the west and you're just kind of left holding the bag looking at possible starvation things like that not good that must have been tricky times no you think corporations today are bad yeah well like more more back then eh? yeah it was far more brutal brutal. back then yeah for sure Now, one of the biggest jobs of the chief was to protect their tribe from Wendigos or other hostile spirits. The belief that this monster was very prevalent throughout the region, and given that they were in the middle of a potential famine, 
it made those legends seem much more real. And so the killings began. Now, we all know that murder is wrong. And by no means are we justifying what happened in this case. But for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of these people. They're faced with mass starvation, sickness, and simply too many mouths to feed. As horrible as it sounds, the killings were seen by many in the Sucker Clan as a grim necessity in order to preserve life from the threats that they were faced with. And not just of the spiritual or supernatural type, it was actually a common practice to kill a member of the tribe if they were sick or too weak to carry or too weak to carry on in order to pre- to preserve resources or to cut off an outbreak of a disease before it spread. It was through this practice that Jack Fiddler and his brother gained the reputations as strong leaders and talented Wendigo hunters. And for good reason. The two boasted having killed up to 14 creatures in a deadly wake. Interesting. Yeah, we'll touch a little bit more on that a little later, but we'll move on with the story now. That said, obviously, we we do not condone the killing of your influenza-riddled grandma or grandpa on the clause of, we gotta protect ourselves, even though we know that the elderly are the globe's greatest threat. And the only reason that we haven't declared open war upon them is because it would be suicide. But I digress. Turns out, the Mounties didn't agree with that either. In 1907, the Royal Mounted Northwest Police were tipped off to Jack killing his brother's daughter-in-law, a suspected Wendigo, a year prior. Now, usually at this time, the indigenous peoples were left to govern themselves when it came to the issues of law and order. But in 1907, there was a drive by the Canadian government to bring their brand of justice to the more remote areas of Canada. This led to the arrest of Jack and Joseph Fiddler for the murder of the girl. It was after preliminary hearings that it was decided that the two would stand trial for the murders. This, however, was something that Jack could not stand for. So on September 30th, 1907, he staged a jailbreak and fled to the nearby woods. His body was found later that day, hanging from a tree, the victim of an apparent suicide. Wow. Regardless of his brother's death, Joseph's trial resumed on October 7th. Testimony given against the brothers and the witnesses claimed that while the people who were brought to the chief and his brothers were sick, they were still held down and strangled to death against their will. The customs of the Sucker Clan were taken into account, and the jury came back with a guilty verdict, but recommended mercy, believing that the chief's brother acted in a way that he felt was best for his people. But the judge did not grant mercy, and Joseph was sentenced to hang. While awaiting his date with the gallows, Joseph filed multiple appeals for the sentence one of which was successful, and on September 4th, 1908, he was granted release. Sadly enough, though, this came three days after Joseph had died in a prison hospital of tuberculosis. Uh-huh. To make it even more tragic, his son Robert would not get the news of his father's release until long after his death in 1927. So aren't we just wonderful toward our indigenous people? Oh, yeah. Ay, ay, ay. Just... Makes me incredibly sad. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he was technically a murderer and everything else, but at the same time. All right. But yeah, with that, I think it's time for a break. Uh, We'll be right back with the tale of the Fort Saskatchewan cannibal Swift Runner right after this. Perfect. Strap in and get ready for the breakout album of the year. One that introduces the biggest stars in the new genre of existential dread metal. Anguish! In their self-titled new album from Beaver Tail Entertainment, 
from front to back, 18 smash hit tracks, such as Awake at 3AM. single, My Deepest Thoughts. <laughs> Call the number on your screen and give us your credit card number to order Anguish today. What do you mean this is an audio medium? Fuck! And welcome back. Okay, guys, as if this episode hasn't been horrifying enough, we're going to stroll straight into some of the most horrific shit in Canada's history. So if you're sensitive to violence against children, violence against animals, violence of any kind, mutilation, cannibalism, family annihilation, or psychosis leading to tremendous violence, hit the stop button right now. You've been warned. And if you happen to clap and squeal with glee at that prior list, uh, you may want to seek help because you might yourself be a Wendigo, which sounds like a terrible Jeff Foxworthy <laughs> joke. There you go. If you love the topic of mutilation and violence against children, you might be a Wendigo. Hey, you do a very good job with that. I've got the Southern, the Southern accent down, I think. And I you think the listeners are probably know. getting tired of it. Oh, you should have been an impersonator. You do a really good job with that stuff. Uh, I've been told I should have been a voice actor. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> the cartoon movies. Yeah, and just in case anybody didn't know, all of our ridiculous ads, I do all the voice acting for those. So there you go. Yeah, I can't do as good a job as Cali. <laughs> so I'll leave that job up to him. He does that stuff. Yeah. In case you're not uh, aware, I'm stalling because I don't want to read this next part. <laughs> but I guess the show must go on. So, in March of 1879, a Cree man known to the locals as Swift Runner appeared in the, North, in the Roman Catholic Mission of St. Albert in modern-day Alberta. I say modern-day because Alberta would not be a province until later, uh, in, until the next century in 1905. Uh, Swift Runner had gained a bit of a reputation in the past year. He had once been seen as being a smart, trustworthy, and all-around nice guy, which had led him into a position with the Northwest Mounted Police as a guide. However, as this employment went on, Swift Runner was introduced to whiskey, which he grew fond of. And the problem was that Swift Runner was a mean drunk. A quote from an unnamed Mounted Police officer credits Swift Runner as being, quote, an ugly customer went on the drink, so ugly that he would be a menace to the whole region. End quote. So the police, seeing a problem with a violent drunk, sent him back to the tribe, where he w was so troublesome that he was said to turn Cree camps into little hells. The Cree people also told Swift Runner to GTFO in the fall of 1878, and he and his family had been forced into the wilderness in the Sturgeon River area, just north of St. Albert. So the group, consisting of Swift Runner, his wife, brother, mother, and his six children. Can you imagine having six kids? That would be interesting. 
Yeah, especially when you're struggling for survival out there. I mean, like, I, I guess this this isn't as bad as the Sucker Clan, but at the same time, it's back in the 1870s, 1880s, it was kind of a rough time. Yeah. By no means does it justify what he did, though, so, which we'll get into now. Swift Runner had appeared in the town to tell authorities that he was the sole survivor of his family following the long and harsh winter. So you can take that pin out that you put in at the beginning of the show now. He claimed that the first two months, their food stores had already become exhausted, and hunting was extremely poor. He claimed that even squirrels could not be found, and so it took to killing and eating the dogs that they had taken with them into the woods. And when that meat was gone, Swiftrunner stated that the family had to eat the leather tent in order to nourish themselves. Swiftrunner went on to say that shortly after eating the tent, his youngest child died of starvation. Ooh. Yeah. But this is what he's saying. What actually happened is uh, going to be story entirely. Yeah. So he claimed also that his mother and brother left them in the wilderness, saying they went off to forage for food but were never seen again. Shortly after this, his children all starved to death, and his wife committed suicide in her grief. There were some problems with the story, though. Because, first of all, other hunters had been having great success hunting in the area. Also, the fact that Swift Runner, who was supposedly the sole survivor of a famine that killed his entire family, was well over 200 pounds and definitely not malnourished. So, the police, suspicious of Swift Runner's story, accompanied him to his camp. During this trip, he tried to escape from the police on two separate occasions, and his behavior became panicked and erratic. So we're already starting to see a pattern here. It required some form of sedation that's uh, listed as strong medicine in some of the newspaper articles, but I couldn't exactly figure out what that was. Uh, anyway, that was administered by the police to get Swift Runner to cooperate and take them to his camp where they uncovered a scene so horrifying that it left a dark imprint on Alberta and Canada's history that persists to this very day. Upon arrival, the police immediately started noticing something that contradicted Swift Runner's story. The tent that he had claimed that the family had eaten to ward off starvation was still mostly, if not completely, intact. Then they found the campfire and the bones. Eight human skulls and a pile of hollowed-out bones were scattered around the remains of the campfire. And there was even a pot containing human fat still hanging over the fire pit. Jeez, imagine stumbling across that. That would... I've actually have seen the crime scene photos of that particular campsite, and it is indeed horrifying. How did you ever come across those? Uh, numerous different blogs and archives from... Uh, the St. Albert RCMP. Interesting. Yeah. In any case, the truth was clear. Swift Runner had not only murdered his family, he'd eaten them. It was shortly oh, after. It was shortly afterwards that Swift Runner would give a full confession. Now, before continuing, in case you didn't catch the warning earlier, this is going to venture into some seriously NSFW territory. And before I get into it, I just want to say the reason that we're even entertaining this is because this is as close as we're going to hear from a genuine Wendigo themselves. And we're not trying to turn this into a gore porn podcast here, but 
when we investigate paranormal events, it's important to look at all angles of the case itself. Right. Yeah. We want to reflect that in the show. Absolutely. Anyway, the confession, the confession was given to Father Hipp- Hippolyte. Hippolyte? H-I-P-P-O-L-Y-T-E. Hippolyte. That's a weird name. It's different. Yeah. But anyway, his last name was Leduc, which actually the name for Leduc, or the name for the town of Leduc in Alberta is named after, believe it or not. Sometime after his conviction, but three days before Swiftburner was to be hanged for his crime, he told Father Leduc, quote, We were camped in the woods about eight miles from here in Fort Saskatchewan. In the beginning of winter, we had not much to suffer. Game was plenty. I killed many moose and five or six bears. But about the middle of February, I fell sick, and to complete our misfortune, those with me had nothing to shoot. We had to soon kill our dogs and survived upon their flesh while it lasted. Having recovered from my sickness, I traveled to a port in Hudson's Bay Company on the Athabasca River and was assisted by the officer in charge. Then returned to my camp with a small parcel of provisions. That did not last us long. We all, that is, my mother, wife, and six children, three boys and three girls, besides my mother, and I began to feel the pangs of hunger. My brother made up his mind to start with my mother in search of some game. I remained alone with my family. Starvation became worse and worse. For many days, we had nothing to eat. I advised my wife to start with the children and follow on the snow and tracks of my mother and brother, who perhaps had been lucky enough to kill a moose or bear, but they left us. For my part, though weak, I hoped that remaining alone, I could support my life with my gun. All of my family left me, with the exception of the little boy, 10 years of age. I remained many days with my boy without finding any game, and consequently, without having a mouthful to eat. One morning, I got up early and suddenly an abominable thought crossed my mind. My son was laying down close to the fire, fast asleep. Pushed by evil spirits, I took my gun and shot him. The ball entered through the boy's skull. Still, he breathed. I began to cry, but what was the use? I then took my knife out and sank it twice into his side. Alas, he still breathed. So I picked up a stick and killed him with it. I satisfied my hunger by eating some of his flesh and lived on that for some days, contracting even the marrow from his bones. For some days afterwards, I wandered through the woods. Unfortunately, I met my wife and other children. I said to them that my son had died of starvation, but I noticed immediately that they suspected the frightening truth. They then told me that they had not seen my mother or brother and who had no doubts died of starvation. Otherwise, they would have been heard from. As it is now seven months since then, three days after joining my family, the oldest of my boys died. We dug a grave with an axe and buried him. We were then reduced to boiling pieces of leather from our shoes and buffalo robes in order to keep ourselves alive. I discovered that my family wanted to leave me from the fear of meeting the same fate as my boy, I'm just going to pause here because it's unclear which one he's referring to here, whether they had discovered the death of the first one or whether they uh, did just didn't want to starve to death like the second one. All right. Yeah, that's hard, hard to do. Yeah, I am shaking reading this. 
this is uh, when I when I came across this, it, it haunted me for some time. So, all right, oh boy. So we'll continue with Swift Runner here. He says, "Quote: One morning, I got up early and did not know why, but I was angry. It seems to me that all the devils had entered my heart. My wife and children were asleep all around me. Pushed by the evil spirit, I took out my gun, placing the muzzle against her, and shot her." I then, without delay, took my hatchet and massacred my three little girls as well. There was not but one little boy, seven years old, surviving. I awoke him and told him to melt some snow for water at once. The poor child was so weakened by starvation to make any reflection on the spectacle around the campsite. I took the bodies of my wife and girls and cut them up. I broke the skulls and took out the brains, and broke up the bones in order to get at the marrow. My little son and I lived for seven or eight days on the flesh, eating the flesh of my wife and daughters, he eating the flesh of his mother and sisters. At length, I left there with all the bones and started with the last of my family. Snow began to melt now. Spring had begun. Ducks arrived and flew every day around us. I could find enough to live upon, but I felt reluctant to see people. I then told my son that after some days we would meet people. They will know very soon that I am a murderer and cannibal. So his son, again pausing, his son knew what had been done at this point. He flat out told this kid, like, yeah, yeah, you ate your mom and your sisters. What a sadistic piece of shit. Yeah, I would say so. Continuing on here. Very nice guy. Sorry? Doesn't sound like a very nice guy. No shit. Wow. We'll finish out the confession here. Uh, so he said that they will know soon that I am a murderer or cannibal. They will certainly may make me die. As to you, there is nothing to fear. Or say all you know, and no harm will be done to you. One day I killed many ducks. I was a few miles from Egg Lake, where some relations of mine lived. I was sitting at the campfire when I told my son to go fetch something five or six paces off. At that moment, the evil spirit took possession of my soul in order to live longer far from people, and to put it out of the way, the only witness to my crimes. I seized the gun and killed the last of my children. I then ate him as I did the others, end quote. That's a very interesting story. I can see why you'd have a hard time reading that one. Yeah. It kind of uh, gives me an uneasy feeling just listening to that part where he eats his family and stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I've got two two kids of my own, and I cannot fathom the kind of mindset that it would take to do that. Yeah, you would almost have to be not human to cause to, to do something like that, although there is really cases of that in the world, you know, something similar. Yeah, no, it's just, I can't wrap my head around that. I mean, well, I guess exactly. I guess in one sense, you, you're you not going to know what you're going to do in a case where you're looking at potentially starving to death. People have done yeah. things like this many times throughout history, as we'll look into, but still, your own but way. For it's... me, if I was out there starving to death, wouldn't you find something from nature to eat? Why, you know, human beings, there's lots of food sources out there if you were desperate enough. Yeah, no, because I mean, like, with his last child, he said that he had killed a number of ducks before before shooting him. So, I mean, like, they had ready food for ready food source. Yeah, I mean, animals is bad enough, but it's better than the alternative. That's to me, that's that's yeah, pretty no. gruesome. Oh, it is absolutely horrible. 
just makes me physically sick. No doubt. Just yeah. thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, you'd have to be some kind of a something else to do something like that and then live with it. The degree of sadism that would be required for that is it's mind boggling, honestly. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah. So, but fortunately, Swift Renner was sentenced to hang on December 20th, 1879 at 7.30 a.m. However, there was a couple of problems with his execution because uh, when they, he was led to the gallows the first time, the trapdoor had been stolen by locals who had taken it to burn it for kindling. And the executioner had also forgotten to bring leather bindings to, you know, tie up the prisoner's arms. Swift Runner made an offer to take his own life with a tomahawk, but this request was denied. Two hours later, the execution was underway after the trapdoor was replaced and the cannibal's hands were bound. It's reported that Swift Runner died without a struggle after hanging for an hour. His body was cut down and buried in the snow outside of the fort. Sheriff Edward Richard remarked on the hanging by saying, quote, Boys, that was the prettiest hanging I ever saw. End quote. Yeah, and that's. Oh, I mean, sorry, Callie. I can see the satisfying nature of that, to be perfectly honest. Knowing what that guy did, I mean, like, I'm not a huge proponent of the death penalty. I believe that only in extreme circumstances should it ever be used. Like, if this person is going to be, like, is definitely a threat and will continue to be a threat, even to people in prison then yeah, end it for them. Exactly. But, I mean, for people who commit like a singular murder or a crime of passion or things like that, no, I don't think the death penalty is justified, but that's just my personal opinion. All right, but with that, we're going to take another break because, quite frankly, I'm going to need a drink after all that. And also, the ad is genuine this time. It comes from uh, some good friends of the podcast. So check them out. Go follow them on Twitter. Subscribe to their feed. You know you know what to do. And Absolutely. Also, and also tell them we say. Yes, for sure. Let's face it. 2020 is basically a mess. We've got worthless politicians, preachy celebrities. We've got people in the stores being inconsiderate and rude. We've got the cancel culture waiting to tell every single one of us how wrong we are. There's keyboard activists that think their memes are going to change the world. We've got science deniers. We've got every flavor of idiot and moron you can imagine. The media bias influencing everything. Political correctness is choking the life and the fun out of everything. We deal with everything from soccer moms to lousy drivers. And then you've got me over here waiting to talk about all of it. The only thing we're not thinking about is your feelings. I had to say it, the podcast. New episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. So now we'll be moving on to similar cases from around the world. The Wendigo is a pretty unique creature, since so we weren't able to really find any other real examples of monsters who were made that way, through cannibalism anyway. But we did find one creature that shares certain similarities to the Wendigo from, believe it or not, ancient Rome. Wow. Her name was Muma Paduri, which translated into English means mother of the forest. Muma is most often described as a witch or a hideous skinny monster 
who makes her home in a virgin forest. Not exactly sure what that means. I don't know how a virgin forest is any different from a regular forest. Virgin forest, I think. I think virgin forest means that it's never been entered by human being that area. Okay, now I'm learning something because I just thought some forests were just really slutty. No, <laughs> no, I think, don't quote me on that, uh, but I think I'm pretty sure that's what it means. Okay. But anyway, Muma, she lives in the woods and she stalks her favorite prey, which of course is humans, uh, particularly children. And in some versions of the myth, myth, it's said that she originally got her dark powers after engaging in cannibalism to begin with. And fun fact, this is widely believed to be the creature that the witch in the Grimm Brothers classic Hansel and Gretel is modeled after. The other account from ancient mythology actually comes from the Greeks, which uh, I'm not sure if this one counts. It's uh, King Lysoan. I'm not sure if he counts because he's more of a werewolf than a wendigo, and he tried to force cannibalism on Zeus, which is a god. And if you try feeding a human being to a god, is that still technically cannibalism? I would have to say no. That would be kind of a question mark. Yeah, I don't know, because they're not humans. And if gods are not humans and they're eating humans, that technically isn't cannibalism. Uh, fun drinking game idea for, for this episode. Take a shot every time we say cannibalism. Wait, no, don't do that. You'll die. I'd be plastered. <laughs> if not completely <laughs> dead. Exactly. Ugh. I haven't even kept a running tally of how many times it's been said on the podcast, but it's fun. All right, so we're going to move on to what could it be? So in order to understand what would drive people to resort to cannibalism and thus become a Wendigo, we have to try and understand where the urge to eat people comes from. Now, there's a couple of different possible explanations here. Uh, a few are from the mind of the cannibal themselves or possibly a medical affliction, that might shed some light on the origin story of the Wendigo. We'll start exploring those explanations now. First one up is Wendigo psychosis. While it's not listed in the DSM-5 or the Data and Statistic Manual for mental illnesses, uh, it's not listed as a legitimate mental illness, but there are more than a few compelling cases to suggest that this may be an extremely rare kind of mental disorder that causes people to see their fellow man as food and not in the cartoony buddy turning into a hot dog kind of a way. Um, this might be connected with some form of pathological cannibalism or as a result of resource scarcity that leads to starvation, which can drive a person into a psychotic state. Kind of like the mind having a fail-safe switch that shuts off to preserve the body by any means necessary, which leads us to our next point of resource scarcity le leading to necessary evils. Yeah. And basically the principle behind this is that, well, the reason for many cases of cannibalism in general is such as like Jonestown, that's the British colony, not the cult, everybody, uh, where starving colonists cleaned out graves and ate the dead after running out of supplies. This was mostly due to really poor planning on the part of the settlers and of the British crown itself. Then there's the story of the uh, the sinking of the Essex in 1820, which, believe it or not, inspired uh, Herman Melville to write Moby Dick. It's an absolutely crazy story because these uh, sailors they were on a whaling ship, right? Mm -hmm. The ship got sunk by a sperm whale. 
it physically attacked the ship and decimated it into just splinters of wood. And the sailors themselves were stuck adrift at sea, I think, for about 40 days. And they had to Spur resort whale. to can- Yeah. I, I always thought it was a killer whale that did that in movie dick. No, no, it was a sperm whale. Oh, okay. Well, where did the killer whale come in? I think okay, it's on board. I thought it was a killer whale. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, I think you're thinking of, I think it was a movie in the late 1980s called Orca. That's what it was. There you go. Okay, that shows you how much I know. Carry on. Proceed. It's strange how much knowledge I have about murderous whales. I know. (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, they had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. And it was a story that haunted Melville until he tracked down a, a single survivor from the wreck and got his story and then proceeded to write Moby Dick, which, of course, we all know and love. Uh, Another case of uh, resource scarcity leading to necessary evils or cannibalism is the Donner Party. Uh, The written accounts of the Forlorn Hope Rescue Party is absolutely horrifying. If you ever get the chance to read it and never want to sleep again, it would certainly appear that... I'm sorry? What was it called again? Uh, The the original uh, group that set out was called the Donner Party. Now, what what happened in this particular um, expedition, they were heading toward Oregon and they got caught in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Oh, yeah. During one of the worst snowfalls in that region's history. And they got stuck up there and it it got to the point where there was absolutely no resources left. People were starving. And so they sent out a group of six to uh, go and find help. Mm -hmm. And that group was called the Forlorn Hope. Interesting. They were the ones who kept the written accounts of what had happened. But uh, yeah, it would certainly appear that many of these people have been possessed. Well, it would certainly appear that many of these people had been possessed by Wendigos or had become them. Because, I mean, like, if you do read the accounts from the Forlorn Hope, when they came back, there were a few survivors and they were emaciated to the point of looking like walking skeletons. Okay. I mean, truly horrifying stuff. Well, yeah, it's not something I don't want to encounter every day. Yeah, I'm just wondering, Kelly, how much truth there would be behind all this. It all sounds very interesting, but as it... uh... Now, are you talking about the historical accounts themselves or uh, the the Wendigo in general? No, the uh, historical accounts themselves. The historical accounts themselves are actually... uh, verified, and you can actually look them up through different um, archival documents and things like that. So, I mean, like, especially with the Donner Party, there's uh, actually, there still exists where they set up camp up in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, as for the sinking of the Essex, I'm not entirely sure how accurate that is, because it happened quite a long time before Melville uh, wrote his fictional mind you account of what happened on that right uh, yeah no there's there's a lot of history to be done there but yeah it's just kind of up to you to find the truth behind it i guess yeah i guess it's uh one of those things whether it's uh, yeah. yeah anyway the point is is that sometimes resource scarcity just does lead to people doing horrible things there's many different types of examples throughout history as you can see there's uh like that plane crash 
in the Swiss Alps where people had to eat the dead. There's that Russian penal island that uh, was there in the Second World War where people started resorting to cannibalism. A lot of different things in can in uh, in history relating to that. But yeah, all of these are examples of resource scarcity that led to cannibalism, which is that fail-safe switch being in the brain being turned off like we discussed. While right. typically not psychosis, it is an interesting look into what human beings are capable of when their lives depend on or when their lives depend on it. However, cannibalism, aside from being downright horrifying, has a serious drawback, which may actually explain how the Wendigo legend came into being in the first place. That explanation actually has ties to a more recent crisis in, that Canada faced. Uh, Darcy, do you remember the mad cow disease epidemic that Canada suffered back in the early 2000s? Oh, yes, for sure. Yeah, it was a uh, Bovine spongiformic encephalitis, which is a fancy way of saying mad cow disease, is a disease that cattle in Canada started exhibiting in the late 90s and early 2000s, and it was characterized by extreme aggression, disorientation, and generally bizarre behavior in animals themselves. And if you remember, the source of the disease was traced back to when the cow or what the cows were being fed. It turned out that somewhere in the supply line, Ranchers had begun experimenting with a cheaper way to feed the bovines and had been feeding them ground-up flesh of other cows. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, it turns out that when humans eat other humans, a similar phenomenon takes place, something that the medical community calls prion's disease, or prion disease, excuse me. This is when a plaque-like substance builds up in and around the nerve cells that make up the central nervous system, including the spinal cord and brain. Now, in humans, the symptoms of prion disease vary greatly, and in certain types of peoples, the effects may, uh, may not be felt immediately. A great example of this, and I'm using air quotes, I'm using air quotes here, All right. uh, was a cursed family in Italy who was plagued with sleeplessness that turned fatal. It only affected the men of the family and spanned for generations before the mystery of the affliction was solved. It was prion disease. And the family traced their family history back to a terrible famine that happened in the region in the early 1700s. There are other cases where the effects are immediate, however, and have led to things like paralysis, brain damage, and even death. So it's not out of the question to say that perhaps the indigenous peoples of our country saw the latter form of prion disease in a person who had committed cannibalism and took it to be some kind of horrible curse bestowed upon the cannibal, thus giving rise to the legend of the Wendigo, a twisted form of a human who was aggressive, insane, and hungry for more victims. At least that's my theory. Okay, that's a pretty good theory. I mean, you draw a pretty good uh pretty good point there for sure yeah because as we've discussed before some of these uh, urban legends or uh, myths or things like that they always have a grain in truth right it's just a matter of tracing it down to where it came from right and i think if the indigenous peoples were experiencing early onset prion disease and things like that it could have given rise to the legend of the wendigo okay that about covers what we think about what it could be. So we're going to move on to, this is where I'm going to put the question of the week bumper. Darcy, 
If you were yes. a Wendigo, which celebrity would you eat? Oh, if I were a Wendigo, which celebrity I'd eat? You mean which celebrities would I eat? Oh, uh, yeah. Why? Why just limit it to one? No, I shit. I got a few, and almost mine would be females, of course. Mm. Uh, shit. I would have to say. And Nicole Kidman, if you're listening, I hope you don't take this the wrong way, but you would be one of them, for sure. Daryl Hannah would be my second. I don't know, man. It's it's hard. To <laughs> but I, there would be, I, I have lots of variety. I could go on forever, but fortunately, we haven't got that time. So it's also that's such, just a couple of the ones I would eat. Yeah, it was. It's also such an obscure fucking question. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, please, Nicole, if you're listening to this. <laughs> He's don't get upset with me. Poor curse at me. Uh, I think though, for myself, it'd have to be Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser? Why Brendan Fraser? Because he just looks like he'd be fucking delicious. Ah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> All right. So the question that question of the week will be posted to our Twitter when this episode goes live. So you guys can join in in the fun. But that about wraps up episode 11, ladies and gentlemen. I think that today we learned to stay the fuck out of the woods and don't fucking eat nobody. Exactly. Better safe than sorry. You said it. Uh, but until next time, you can get in contact with us here at Canadian Spirit by reaching out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash spiritgp, on our Twitter account at spirit underscore Canadian, our email, spiritinstitutegp at gmail.com, and finally, you can leave us a voice message, which we will share on a future episode at anchor.fm slash Canadian spirit slash message. We and wanna... aren't you glad that this episode is out of the way, Kelly? You were so yes. afraid of this one. Yes. It must be a huge relief for you. It is. I mean, this particular topic, when we first started talking about doing the podcast, I started doing the research then because I knew I could only take it in small chunks. So this has been almost a year in the making. There we go. Which will also speak to the length of this episode. <laughs> yes, for sure. And thank you very much to our listeners for listening. Uh, if you have any questions for either I or Kelly, please feel free to comment yeah, feel- or let us know. And we'll be glad to answer them in any, any way we can. Yeah, You betcha. And finally, if your heart is not as cold and icy as a Wendigo, Please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any of your plat- podcast platforms of choice to allow us to reach some new listeners who are missing out on this madhouse of our own creation. So tune in next time on our analysis on another haunting with a potentially problematic name. We didn't name it. Uh, Don't cancel us. It's going to no. be the Caledonia Mills Fire Spook. Ooh, so, that should be a good one. Mm-hmm. So until I'm next stoked. time. So until next time, I've been Kelly. And I've been Darcy. And this has been Canadian Spirits. Canadian Spirits. Good night, everybody. Good night. That's all for this episode. Special thanks to Torin for our music. Zach Black, that's me, for voice work. All of our sources we used for this episode. And you, our listeners. For more information on the Supernatural Paranormal Investigations and Research Institute, visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash spiritgp. We'll see you in two weeks.